Turn to Hebrews chapter 9, and I will be reading for you and preaching for you out of Hebrews chapter 9, verses 23 through 28, as we conclude this particular chapter to this sermon series. Hear now the very word of God. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not of his own, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, And after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are amazed by this summarization that it is Jesus, it is his blood that has been poured out upon all of these things before you. Father, help our minds to see the reality that he is there with you now, sitting at your right hand, making intercession for us, So that we would receive this benefit that as he is taking away our sin, he is putting before you us that we will be able to dwell eternally with you and that we are even able to be with you now, even in this prayer, only by the power of Jesus Christ that we are able to have fellowship with you. Father, help us to understand the sweetness of that, the wonder of that, that us sinners are able now to be before you in fellowship and feasting forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The writer to the Hebrews here is making a summarization of the things that he's been saying, not only in this chapter, but really he does that a lot. He he does kind of conclusions. He comes back and he wraps it up and then he goes a little further and then he wraps it up again. And then in many ways you could almost see that this particular chapter could end the letter, but then he's going to go deeper. It's just to another greater level. And sometimes that's the way I feel like my sermons are. It's like, you know, you might be thinking, oh, he's done. He's going to wrap it up. And there he goes again. <laughs> and he wrapped it up and there he goes again. 
And I'm not using this particular model by the writer to the Hebrews as the way to do my sermons, but that is very much what is occurring here is that he is wrapping up the things that he just said as he has, in this particular chapter, he has brought us back to the tabernacle and the temple to think about the things of old, the things of the old covenant, how all of these things were commanded by God and how they were shadows, how they were symbols, how they were examples of what is something greater than that has now come in Jesus Christ. And he is wrapping it all up for us and he's bringing it in a very encouraging way. He's bringing it to us. He is showing that all of this has happened for us. And it's a tremendously encouraging summarization of everything and then we're going to go again in the next few more chapters to continue to see that fleshed out even more but today in this particular sermon as we wrap up this particular chapter with this particular paragraph i have three things that i want you to be seeing highlighted in this particular paragraph number one that everything concerning our fellowship with god must be cleansed Now, the encouraging thing about this is that everything about the book of Hebrews is that Jesus Christ has come to cleanse those things. We see that everything that was going on in the tabernacle and in the temple was incomplete, insufficient, that these were symbols of something that had to happen that was greater than and that Jesus has done it. And so therefore, that when there was the blood of goats and the blood of cows and the blood of bulls that was being poured out there in the tabernacle and the temple, that ultimately all of that was pointing to the blood of Jesus Christ. And that those things have to be washed. Those things have to be cleansed for there to be fellowship. But as we have seen that the whole point of the tabernacle and the whole point of the temple is for us to understand that God is inviting his people to gather with him. That the whole image of the tabernacle and the whole image of the temple is a wondrous call to worship, but to have worship in fellowship. There's the table. There's the bread. There's the incense of prayers and conversations with God. But then as you go into the holies of holies, you see that what is going to be able to accomplish, everything that is being set before and centered in, it is in God's word, in his promises, in his truth, in his law, in the goodness of who he is, in his provision, in his glory. And all of that has to be covered. God has not stopped. What I want to encourage you in that is that in this understanding of what we see, that God has not stopped calling his people to be in fellowship with him. Typically, when we think about the Old Testament, we see all of that blood and we hear all about law. We're thinking, wow, that was harsh and that was hard and that was difficult. We know it was a calling from God to his people to be drawn to him. It was a wonderful beautiful image of God desiring to dwell with his people. But because of the reality of sin, because of the reality of what happened in the garden with Adam and Eve, and because of the reality of our own corruption of our own heart, that there was a wall, there was a veil, that the people had to stay outside in the courtyard. 
That there had to be an appointment of people coming in in different layers to get to God. And that we see now in Jesus Christ that that barrier has been broken. In many ways, when we think about where we are now in this age, it's it's as if since the veil has been torn in two at the cross and crucifixion of Jesus Christ, we are like in the middle of that veil in a sense. We're not yet complete. We know that we are not dwelling there fully ourselves personally right now at the right hand of God. But that the barrier has been broken and we are now being allowed to enter in. And our brother Jesus Christ, our King, our Savior, our Messiah, our Lord, is there sitting at the right hand of not the things that were shaped by God's hand, by man's hands, but by the reality of the things that are before the Father now. That is where we are right now. So as we think about this first point, that everything concerning our fellowship with God must be cleansed, that means that everything now in our fellowship with God has to be cleansed. It means we have to be cleansed for us to be able to be in the presence of the Lord. Our worship has to be cleansed. The things that we are doing here today, everything that is coming out of our mouths, Everything that we will participate both in prayer, song, proclamation, and in feasting together at his table is all covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's point two, is that Jesus' blood cleanses everything then and now, once and for all times. The point that the, the writer to the Hebrews here is saying that these things, it was necessary for the copies of heavenly things to be purified with these rites, these shadows, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these, which is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And that's not just for them, it is now, it is what empowers our worship today. So as we're gathered here today, there is a parallel, and I hope that you've been able to see that. I've even sent some things out in my worship notes that I sent out weekly that is to hopefully is helping you see that our worship, though it is simplified by having the revelation of Jesus Christ being put before us, that our worship now in many respects is in the same manner as theirs that we still have to have the blood of Christ covering the things that we're doing. Now, we don't have blood in here. We don't have any goats, thankfully. There might be some that know that door latch is a little loose. There may be one coming through there. Occasionally, I see chickens out there on the steps. And so if you see a goat go down the center of the aisle, it is not because we're getting ready to do a sacrifice. So don't, don't be worrying about that. That's gone. We're here by other things that have been commanded by our Lord Jesus Christ. And we've summarized and seen those things in his word. We are called to come with repentance and faith. We are called to come declaring his word. Just as the word was inside of the Ark of the Covenant and is the center of his promises, our worship is centered in the word of God. You may notice as you go through the order of worship, you can't go through a page. Even my messed up pages, there's still the word of God all over the place because that was center in God's desire for his worship, that his word would be center. And then we have prayers, just like the incense we're burning there in the tabernacle and temple. The Lord desires conversation 
with his people. He desires, he commands, and he invites. And we should delight that we are able to even come to him in Jesus' name and have conversation with him. We have bread on this table, like the bread that was on the table then. But now we know that that was a shadow. We know that the bread here is pointing to the revelation of Jesus Christ, his body. This is not his physical body. It is also a copy in a sense, but it's pointing to the reality now revealed that's greater than what they had then. They did not know the things that we know now. And all of this is pointing back to the blood of Jesus Christ as we have come together in fellowship to be with God's people and to be with God. He says that we are now his temple, that he dwells amongst us. And that's an amazing thing that all of these things that were copies, the reality is the very point of everything he had in the tabernacle and temple is being accomplished in his people. And that is a beautiful, wonderful thing. And it is only possible by the fact that Jesus' blood did cleanse everything. And number three, Jesus saves. That's a pretty popular term that's been around for a long time. I have a friend that does neon signs. He used to do neon signs for a living now. I think he works for a church now doing sound systems and such. But he used to do these neon signs, and I know he still does it as a hobby. And that, you know, that was one of his favorite ones to do, that some churches now will have that. It's, I don't know where that original one was. Out, I think it was in some metropolitan area where there was a sign. You probably have seen it before, and it says Jesus saves. And then it was a pretty popular thing people would write. You sometimes still see it on bridges or on, on a telephone poles and such where it's a very simple phrase, and it's a phrase that is important for us to remember. And we see here in this particular passage that Jesus is going to return to save, that he's done this work, that he did this work that saved the people of the Old Covenant and has saved the people of the New Covenant and is continuing, continuing to save people today as people are being com- that are coming to him and will continue to bring people to him but that he's actually going to complete that salvation by coming again, as we see here in the conclusion of this paragraph, that for those who are eagerly waiting for him, when he comes back, he will complete that salvation. What an encouraging way to end the paragraph, that Jesus saved then, now, and he is going to save completely soon. Now, it's difficult for me to break up this particular passage in those three things. They're kind of laid out that way because they all are overlapping each other. But I think the summarization that we can see that the writer of the Hebrews is constantly making is that in the revelation and the work of Jesus Christ, that our worship, that our lives, that our relationship with God has been somewhat simplified because it's been centered in the person of Jesus Christ. In the work of Jesus Christ. Everything we see in the book of Hebrews is to highlight the supremacy. How he is the greatest of everything that God had shown and taught us. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God himself, is the centerpiece. It simplifies everything for us. But it also helps us to identify. So one, it's, it simplifies. So you're thinking, he's given more points? How many sermons is he going to preach here? This is, but breaking it down, it's like... 
It simplifies, but it also identifies. It helps us to be identified with him that it defines for us now, just like I mentioned before in the last sermon, that yes, we're sinners, but we're sinners that have been saved. We are worshipers who have been called. We are disciples of Jesus Christ. We are heirs because of Jesus Christ who was chosen by God. Chosen heirs who are now brethren with Christ that now are granted the benefits and the riches of Jesus Christ. And we are friends of Jesus Christ. So the coming and the revelation and the work of Jesus Christ simplifies things for us. It helps us to identify who we are, but it also intensifies. You know, you look at what goes on in the temple and in the tabernacle, it's very intense, you know, the imagery there. And you might think, well, things have kind of calmed down now. No, actually, the dominion of Jesus Christ over all things has actually been intensified. The things that have been, was a shadow or were used for even moments of teaching, have now have been exploded into having dominion over all things. And so when we look at our identification as sinners saved by grace, worshipers of God, disciples of God, heirs and friends of God, we should see that it has now covered everything, that everything that we see, everything that we do, should be identified as being under the reign of Jesus Christ. Because we're told in his word that the whole world is now made the footstool of our King, Jesus Christ. So it intensifies. And that intensification needs to be before our mind because we also are told in this word that there's still in this age, in this particular time, until he comes and completes everything and returns, there is suffering. It's a promise. And it and actually that suffering intensifies his reign even more. Because it is in that suffering that his work is being accomplished because it was in his suffering that that work was secured. And so we are now called not to be left in the courtyard, but we are called as a priesthood of believers as we are going in through that veil that we are a priesthood of believers that are to proclaim now who Jesus Christ is, both in our words and as living sacrifices in this age. And that's going to require suffering. We will never have to bear the cross that Jesus bore in its fullness. We'll never have to bear the sins of one another. Jesus Christ bore those sins. But as we are now baptized in him, We also take on suffering. It is the nature of the furthering of his kingdom. It was the nature of the securing of the kingdom. And therefore, it will be the nature of the furthering of the kingdom until he returns. And that is why this last sentence is so encouraging that he is coming back to save those who eagerly are waiting for him. And then lastly, he glorifies because of what Jesus has accomplished, because we have now seen the revelation of Jesus Christ. This fact now glorifies God in the fullest extent that we now know the purposes that he has intended in sending this Messiah and Savior and King. So 
So I want to kind of go through, and I want to go through, and like I always do, go through some other passages that this is being fleshed out for us a little more. And I think one of the most poignant passages that are kind of, it's kind of a parallel passage. And I think if you've studied this last paragraph in Hebrews, and you hear now what I'm getting ready to read, if you would turn over to 1 Peter chapter 3, you'll see that um, there's some similar language. Um, I'm not one to think that Peter actually wrote the book of Hebrews. I lean toward the fact that it may have been Paul, even though we don't have it being identified by a particular author in the actual book. Um, But the same theology is definitely present here. And here in First Peter chapter 3, and if you've noticed that, that is also uh, what we have in our confession of sin as well, and our assurance of grace. But in First Peter chapter 3, looking at verse 18, just as we see there in Hebrews, we see the echo that for Christ also suffered once. For sins. That's important for us. It's important for us to understand the distinction of what's going on. That for those of the Old Covenant, there was a lot of repetition. There was weekly. And then for the atonement, there was annual priest going in to the temple and the tabernacle and doing the sacrifices. And it was incomplete because it was pointing to something that would be complete. And that Jesus is why it's so important for us to understand that once... And this, is, this once means a lot of things. One, it's saying that it's distinct from the temple worship. But it's also a reminder to us that this is a reality. Again, just echoing what I was saying earlier during our prayer time. And then what was said yesterday at our, our, our meeting um, with the, the deeply rooted youth folks. That a lot of people have a hard time in this age. The temptation is, is to forget that this happened. This is not just some poem of make-believe. Jesus came in the flesh and died once for the sins of all his people and rose again. God made this spectacle before witnesses 2,000 years ago that people truly saw and reported as evidence that yes, This occurred. This happened in history, and it happened in history. Therefore, it is a reality, and it happened once, and it completed what was necessary for us to be able to have fellowship with him. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous one for the unrighteous. So important for us to remember that Jesus came Though the one who did receive temptation and suffered as we are, that he was made like his brethren, but without sin. That he might bring us to God. I love that. That his purpose, the whole purpose of all of creation, the whole purpose of the king of all creation, was so that he would bring us to God. Again, remember what the tabernacle, tabernacle and the temple was pointing to. That God desires to be amongst his people. He desires that fellowship and that communion. But someone had to come to bring us in. And as Jesus has been pulling us through that veil, he did so through his own blood. And I've lost my space. 
to bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, and alive, but made alive in the Spirit. Now here's where we're going to have to have some four-wheel drive to get to through this particular passage, because this, this could be a distraction for us. So, so hunker down and put on your seatbelts, because I'm going to go through this passage in its completion here, from starting over again, because this is where a lot of people can kind of get lost. But you, you need to understand that it's building off of each other. Right? So I'm going to start over in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. This is where people start falling out of the Jeep. Because they formerly did not obey. When God's patient waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. It's where a lot of other people fall out of the other side of the Jeep. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Now those commas are bumpy. <laughs> you're going through that passage, and, in, and as you're hitting those bumps, you know, you know how it is like you know, you're riding along and you're, you start to fall asleep and somebody hits a bump or they make a sharp curve or something and you kind of wake up. You know, I think that's the way we are sometimes when we're going through the scriptures. You know, a lot of the fancy wording and all of this amazing talk about Jesus Christ. And, and then all of a sudden you hit this comma and then you're going, what, Jesus, he went to prison to preach? What, what, what was that? So you're saying that after he died, he went to the prisons to speak to the captives? What, you know, it's like, wow, that's, that's interesting. <laughs> and then you get to that part where it says, and now... Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. You're like, whoa, now hold up. Now I remember the Reformation, and we don't believe that baptism saves people. So what's that all about? And so you're getting all of these speed bump commas that are throwing us all over the place. That's why it's important that we stay awake for the whole ride here. And if we look at it as a parallel to what's been going on in here in Hebrews, and also to a lot of the passages that we've already been reading through the lectionary today, which is amazingly pointing to this, I think it'll make a lot more sense. So let's go back again. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now, let's, let's stop here. And let, this can be a confusing component. And even some people believe that, that and even in the, and how when we do our confession of faith and we say that he descended to the dead, and some people say that he has descended into hell, that, they, that Jesus actually went into hell and talked to people and released them somehow or another. But you've got to think about what we do see in the Scriptures. The Scriptures we see, everything in the Gospel that's been proclaiming, that even from the very beginning when Jesus was in the temple and he was reading from Isaiah, that he had come to release the captives from their sin. And if we go all the way back to the Old Covenant and we remember what was going on there with Moses, that Moses came to release the captives from their slavery. And then we see here in the context of the very passage in 1 Peter 
that God was saving his people from the captivity of their ignorance and sin during the time of Noah. That all of this releasing of captivity from our bondage was ultimately our bondage to sin and death. And that when Jesus came, that his work is what brought the fulfillment of that proclamation of liberty to those who are captive. And we see it in context here. And this is what I'm saying. That if you look at it fully in the context, he's making a parallel that when Jesus did this, it is ultimately the fulfillment. It is the empowerment. It is the reality of the salvation that happened in the days of Noah when he saved those eight people from the wrath of the Father. And then, so you're, you're, what he's actually doing here, he's saying, like, this is what Jesus has done. Jesus is here. Jesus has done this. That he had suffered once for sins so that the righteous one would be the, the savior of the unrighteous so that he might bring us to God and that he would die and that he would be made alive and that because of that work of the cross and the resurrection that that proclamation of liberty is being completed for Noah, for Moses, and for us in the here and now. And that now baptism... Not the blood of goats and bulls. That baptism is now pointing to our salvation. Whereas the blood of goats and bulls were pointing to their salvation. Where the ark through the flood was pointing to their salvation. We now have baptism which points to the reality of our cleansing, of us being cleansed and being used as instruments of worship. And so this physical baptism that many and most of you have gone through, that it's not that water, it's not that act of baptism, just like it wasn't the blood of goats and bulls, and just like it wasn't ultimately the ark, and ultimately it wasn't just being pulled through the Red Sea, that it is Jesus that is saving us and that our worship, that our involvement, that our activity in the here and now is that we are to do the command that we were called to be baptized, to be disciples, and also in a moment he has called us to feast with him. And so the baptism now saves us is the same kind of language that it would have been that the blood of goats and bulls would have saved them. It didn't actually save them. It pointed to the Savior. Just as now baptism points to our Savior and our cleansing and the, what empowers the Holy Spirit to be poured out upon us and to be saved. Not as a removal of dirt. All of our baptisms had some water. If it didn't have water, it wasn't a baptism because that is a requirement. And it might have washed off some dirt. Some of us were dirtier than others when we got baptized. Some of us may have gotten into the river and got dirtier in the river (laughs) than we were. But that's not the point. The point is not a removal of dirt from the body. But as an appeal to God, our, our baptisms is appealing to God. It's in God... We need a good conscience. Our baptisms are appealing to God that something has happened, Lord. We're pointing back to Jesus. 
Just as the blood of goats and bulls was an appeal to God, God, we need atonement. We need salvation. You have promised us, you're telling us in this command that you're going to bring a Savior. And so we're pointing to this, we're appealing to something greater. And we now know what is greater and we're pointing back to it. And saying because of Jesus, we have been promised that our consciences can be cleansed. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is now at your right hand, Father, with angels and authorities and powers, having been subjected to him. Because of the power of Jesus Christ, our baptisms now are an appeal to God that the work of Jesus Christ can cleanse us. Does that make sense? Y'all following me on that? Y'all with me? (laughs) And that is something for us to have hope in. Now I'm going to back this up a little bit by going through a couple of different dialogues. If you you want to turn with me, I'm going to go quickly through here in John 3. There was a conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. And they were talking and Jesus said to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? It's a reasonable question. It might have been a little bit of an annoying question. It's it's annoying for us now because I think we know what it means to be born again. Well, maybe we do. You know, he's being technical. You know how some people are when you're trying to tell somebody something and they start getting with the technicalities. Well, Nicodemus is getting really technical here. And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And many, many people have been mesmerized by that particular answer, trying to understand what that means. We can't assume that Nicodemus would have known what was in 1 Peter because 1 Peter hadn't been written yet. But we know that he had Ezekiel. He did have Ezekiel chapter 36. And I would encourage you to turn over there real quickly. I'm going to read just a few verses out of there because this is where, this is where it gets to the, the nets and bolts of the encouragement here. In Ezekiel chapter 36, in verse 22... And this is a promise. Now you've got to remember, this is in context. Ezekiel's a prophet. He's coming to proclaim the wrath of God to sinners, to a world of sin. But inside of this, we have the bad news because we see the bad news that sin separates us from God and wreaks havoc in the world. We see that through all the prophets. But we also see the good news. And even now, we are continuing, as we are worshiping the Lord, if we are a gospel ministry, I have to report the bad news, and I have to report the good news. Well, in the middle of Ezekiel reporting the bad news, we see here this promise of good news. Verse 22, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. You've got to remember, God has promised that he's going to save his people. And he's like, it's not your righteousness. You're not good enough for me to act on this. I have to keep my promises. So don't ever think that the Lord saved you because you're cute, or you're nice, or you've done good things. You can't do enough good things. If you go through the Old Testament and much of the New Testament, you will be reminded that it is impossible for you to be able to please the Lord. But he will do it for his own name. 
which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Now you might think, man, he just really keeps on pointing that out. That like, man, we, he's, he's not doing it for us. He's, he's not doing it for anything we've done. He's doing it for his own holiness. That's actually a really big encouragement. Because I think if we're honest with ourselves, if we're truly honest with ourselves, you know you're a vile sinner. You know there's no hope in yourself. And the whole point of the, of the law is for us to understand that, that we can't. We can't do this. And it means that it's not up to you. Which is, this is where it starts to get encouraging. is because we're complete failures of being able to provide any righteousness before God. That means it's completely not up to us to receive our own salvation. It means we can't do it. We cannot conjure up anything in and of ourselves to be worthy to be in fellowship with God. And so God's going to take care of this. God's going to do it himself. I will take you, verse 24, I will take you from the nations, and I will gather you from all countries, and I will bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from your uncleanliness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Something has to happen. We see here that God's not going to bring us in because of anything that we can bring to offer. The only contribution that we have to this salvation is our sin. That God is the only one, it's His grace alone that is going to save us. It is His work alone. And it is because of His promises we can have hope that He is actually going to cleanse us. Nicodemus would have been familiar with this particular promise of the good news. He would have understand that the Spirit is going to be necessary to wash us from our wickedness. And that we can have our consciences cleansed. That we can have fellowship with God. And so we see that Everything concerning our fellowship with God must be cleansed. We have to be cleansed. Our hearts have to be cleansed. We see that Jesus' blood cleanses everything then, now, and once and for all. And he is saving us from our sin. Our complete inability to being able to do anything. And it is now being intensified in our walk today. Now, how do we understand this in light of our Christian walk today? Well, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, we see that at the end of Paul's life, he highlights the same thing that should be before our minds as we complete our race. It says, For I am ready to be poured out as a drink offering, 
And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. We know that Paul's life was identified a lot with the suffering of Jesus Christ. You and I, whether you realize it or not, you're dealing with the suffering of the calling of being a Christian. Some of you are dealing with the suffering of being a Christian because you are standing up for the Lord, because the Lord is using you in the proclamation of His truth. You're trying to be honest in a dishonest world. You may lose out on opportunities because you're having to be honest. You may lose friends because you're speaking the truth when you are talking about what God has said about sin. And you may receive suffering from that. Families may be receiving persecution and difficulty for following after the Lord and teaching what is right and good. People may lose their jobs because of that. Some of you are suffering because of the struggle of sin. And that might be a difficult thing to to see as a positive, but it's good that you struggle with sin. You don't want to be content with sin. You don't want to be hardened to sin. And you're having a really difficult time dealing with your sin when you know that God has called us to be holy before Him. And you know that you can't conjure up the holiness in of yourself. And so it's causing you to learn how to depend upon Him more, to call upon Him more, to ask Him more, Lord, pour out Your Spirit and cleanse my conscience. I cannot think straight. I cannot think the right way. I must have my conscience clean. That's a good place to be in. But you're begging God to free you from wicked thoughts from the continual failure of your own wickedness or your inability to love and to serve one another in your home or in your community, to speak with patience and gentleness and kindness. Surprise my children, don't throw things at me after I say that. Like, yeah, you need to listen to yourself preach there, pastor. (laughs) But we keep calling out to the Lord holding on to His promises, and we're waiting. Say, Lord, we are longing for Your return when this suffering will be complete. You have to remember the context of Hebrews is the same context that we see here in 2 Timothy when Paul is talking to Timothy. The people, the Christians, the Hebrew Christians were at a time of immense suffering. Some of them were suffering persecution. We know that it was likely that this is during the age of Nero, and Nero was a wicked, wicked ruler that did tremendous amount of persecution against the Christians. But we also know that the Christian Hebrews were sinners, dealing with temptation, dealing with doubt. That's why in Hebrews chapter 2 it says that Jesus faced temptation so he can help us. When we are facing temptation, temptation to sin, the straight up sin, 
That is our calling now, is that we would struggle through that sin. So yes, it is a struggle and suffering to stand up for God and face the consequences and to continue to struggle through our own sin. And that we are encouraged by this passage that we will not be left at this forever. But this is not the eternal occupation of God's people. But that he will appear a second time. He doesn't have to come back to die on a cross. He doesn't have to come back to do another sacrifice. This is not like the, 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 the year of atonement, having to come back in and go back to the blood. He doesn't have to do that anymore. He did that once and for all in real time and space in history. And he will come back in real time and space in history. And he will save those who are eagerly eagerly loving His appearing. That is where we are today, brothers and sisters. If you are not one who has come to Him, who who has not yet answered the call to worship Him, who has not come in repentance and faith, that now is the time. Now is the perfect time to come repent To hold on to that great sacrifice that is in Jesus Christ and to dwell in that fellowship. It may not seem like an appealing invitation. It's like, come and suffer with us. (laughs) Come and suffer during this age. May it be known as we see all of these examples that the slavery of the Israelites by the Egyptians, even, even the wrath of the flood is nothing compared to the open wrath of God for eternity. But because of Jesus Christ, for what He has done, and the calling of the good news and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, we can be clean. We can be clean before the Lord. Repent, believe, come to Jesus, fellowship and feast with Him. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for this word, this hopeful word of your goodness and grace, this scary word of your wrath and holiness. And we cannot understand and we cannot conjure up anything in of ourselves that can reconcile those two things. Only in Jesus Christ is that possible. Father, may it be that people will leave here remembering that not only is Jesus Christ the center of of our salvation, He is the center of everything that we do. And even now, namely our worship, as we continue to worship You in thanksgiving and in fellowship and feasting, may Your name be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let us stand and let us give thanks to the Lord.